you got to just be a human being first, especially during jury selection. It's hard to really know how it's going to go. You hope for the best and you think you've given them the best chance to succeed. What's your strategy? I'm pretty aggressive. I never bluff. I would never accept a jury, even if I thought the defense was going to keep striking. If I thought if they were to accept the jury right now, I'd be like, oh, shit, I screwed up. In law school, attorneys are taught to challenge everything, tear things apart, break them down. But the qualities that make great lawyers can be some of the worst for running a business. At every stage of growth, running a business and practicing law can feel overwhelming. And what happens when you try to add life and family to the mix? It can feel nearly impossible. You do not have to do this alone. I'm Maria Monroy, co-founder and president of LawRank a leading SEO agency for ambitious law firms. Each week, we hear from the industry leaders on what it really takes to run a law firm, from marketing to manifestation. Because success lies in the balance of life and law, we're here to help you tip the scales. To recover the most for your client, you have to pick the right jury. Knowing what to look for and the right questions to ask comes with experience. Few people have more experience with jury selection than Harry and Claire Plotnick. Together, they have helped select over 800 juries and recover over $2 billion over the past 20 years. The California-based consultants have some amazing insights for us. Today, we get into why jurors make value-based decisions and what to do about it, the best open-ended questions to ask a potential juror, the right way to connect and get their true feelings, which big mistakes to avoid, and my favorite, what to do about young jurors. They might not be as bad as you think, but first, Harry shares how he got into jury consulting. Right out of college, I was working for some experts, and I have this background in in psychology, and that's where my interest was, but I was doing some really boring crunching numbers for expert economists. And a bunch of the lawyers who were working with us came to me and said, how do I explain all this really boring, complex stuff that your bosses are testifying in my trials? How do I explain that to a jury? How do I you know, show it in a picture? And so I started designing demonstratives and helping them to explain things and do framing before I even knew that this was a job. And then eventually, after a few months, one of them was nice enough to tell me you know, hey, what you're doing is actually, this is a real job. And I had no clue. I was doing jury consulting before I was a jury consultant. And (laughs) so I eventually started working with a couple of people I knew that were starting their own jury consulting company. And I spent a few years just watching focus groups, watching trials, learning about it before I started doing it myself and spun off my own practice in 2006 and have been doing it full-time nonstop ever since. And when did Claire join you? Oh, I started uh, working with Harry actually when we were dating when I was maybe a senior in college because I wanted to go to law school. So I started working his focus groups so that I could see which kind of law I would like to do. And um, not only did I have a bunch of lawyers tell me that you shouldn't become a lawyer, but I also discovered that I just really liked I really liked, you know, because I'm very I'm a very extroverted person. I really like dealing with people. And I felt like this maybe was a better a better fit for me than all the paperwork and stuff that is, you know, being a lawyer. So that's how I started. And what's it like working together? Because you guys are married. Let me make that clear. Correct. You have children as well. Yeah, we do. We have 
two young kids. And people ask this all the time, did you guys meet when you were both jury consultants? It was yeah, totally the other way around. I wrote Claire after we were married into uh, being a jury consultant. And so she basically, she was really fascinated by it. She had a great aptitude for it. She spent, you know, probably a couple of years uh, basically just uh, trailing me, coming to every single trial and every single focus group, which I miss now. Now that we have young kids, that's just not going to happen anymore, unfortunately, across the country sometimes before she was, you know, awesome and able to do it on her own. But uh, yeah, it's always fun balancing the two young kids, six and eight with a crazy trial schedule. Yeah. And working together. I work with my husband as well. So I know all the, the, the good, bad, and the ugly. Claire, what's it like for you working with Harry? I've always really enjoyed it. When I came out of college, I briefly tried to add uh, two other careers, actually, because we had just gotten married. And I had a lot of people in my ear saying that you don't want to work with your spouse. And I discovered I really didn't like either one of them nearly as much as you know, doing jury consulting and working together. So I kind of, I've never really known them apart. So I, I'm happy with it, with it the way that it is, you know, I mean, we don't do actually that much work together anymore, but I would say that a lot of our non-kid discussions revolve around the job, which is true. That can be tiresome sometimes, you know, work bleeds into all hours of the day, but I think we also both really like it. So it ends up being, for the most part, really good. And I, it's we're kind of always thinking and always bouncing ideas off of each other. So I like that part. Oh, absolutely. Mariano paused. What's the new Game of Thrones prequel called? House of Dragon. He paused it the other day at like 10 p.m. on Sunday to talk to me about work. I was not very happy about it. I'm not going to lie. I was like, I really just want to watch my show. So I've definitely been there. Yep. When most people get summoned for jury duty, they are not excited about it. But what kind of jurors are you looking for when you're making the selection? Does it depend on the case? How does that work? It really depends on the case. I Such would... a lawyer answer. You're not lawyers. You're not allowed to give well, but me no, but it's a, I think it does everyone a disservice if they think that we're looking for a specific person for every case because it's not the, the truth. And there is no cookie cutter recipe for a good juror. Harry and I have seen this time and time again. For example, you might see a juror in a focus group five years before and they were a terrible juror and then on a different case, they're actually wonderful. And so I would hate to put people in a box and say, I I always want teachers. No, that's not true. Yeah, it totally depends on what's going to set a person off one way or the other. And like Claire said, I mean, I've seen it a million times where we'll be doing a focus group on a case and one of us maybe exactly a couple years before has had the same juror and one of us may say, Oh man, I met, I did this, um, you know, personal injury case and this, they were like the worst juror in the world. And I come back and I'm like, that person was gave tons of money in the focus group because it was a sexual abuse case and they're totally different in how they approach it. So there's no such thing really as a person who's always a good plaintiff juror or always a defense juror. We don't rely, like Claire was saying, on demographics, even on jobs. It's really just what their values are, what their beliefs are, what their expectations are that totally can set them off one way or the other. And one of the main things I always teach is standards. Like if they are used to really high standards of, you know, safety or good quality testing by doctors or whatever it is, and what they see in the trial is like fall short of it, they're going to be really good for the plaintiff. And if they're people who have really low standards and they're like, I've been in a, you know, I'll use a medical malpractice case. If they're like, every time I've been to the ER, it takes me four hours and the doctor comes in, you know, before I see a doctor and they come in and they barely do anything. They actually tend to be pretty bad because they're like, 
what this doctor did wasn't that unusual. And so it just depends on what they've seen and what their values are in that particular case. So we always write totally different questions and jury selection for the lawyers to ask just based on the unique issues of the case. And why is it that jurors make their decision or vote based on their values versus the law or the facts in front of them? Who's right or who's wrong in most of these cases? Uh, you know, it's obviously in the eye of the beholder. And in civil cases, you know, it's really a little different than criminal cases. In criminal cases, it's like, what happened? Like, did this did this guy do it? In civil cases, everyone agrees on what happened. It's just, was that right or wrong? Like, was that dangerous or was that not dangerous? Was that reasonable or not? And so people are really just kind of substituting their judgment for, you know, hey, I don't think that was that bad. I think companies should be, you know, super careful. And these people were careless. And other people saying, uh, you know, what can people do? They, You know, companies can't protect everybody. So they really have the right to shape what they think is fair and, and unfair. So even when they're trying to follow the law, two jurors who have totally different ideas about what's fair will totally interpret the law two different ways. So, you know, it's one of those weird things that just comes down to who's on your jury. There's a lawyer that it's their first trial and they have to do jury selection and they want to do it themselves. What advice would you give them? Don't judge a book by its cover. Don't base who you're striking on weird things like I want older people or younger people or men and women. Really get to know the things that matter. If it's a case about safety, just get them talking about what the responsibilities are of you know people to keep themselves safe and companies to keep us safe, whatever the issues are, and just listen to them. You can figure out pretty quickly who are the ones who have a really uh, you know thinks that there's a lot of responsibility on the defense side versus the you know, the consumer or the person side. And I've had jurors say, man, if I couldn't play golf ever again, that would be the worst. You know, and some people are like, golf is the most frivolous thing in the world. And some people who say, you know, suck it up. Like you get hurt, suck it up. I had a trial recently, a couple of weeks ago, where some of the jurors were talking about, I just think if you get injured and you can't do what you love, find something else. Doesn't matter what it is. And other jurors who were like, that would be horrible, you know? So just talk to them about what, you know, your case is going to be about without putting words in their mouth or without arguing with them and, you know, be willing to listen. You got to, you should be as a lawyer listening to them 90% of the time and trying to talk as little as you can, little as a, as a lawyer can at least. And can you give some examples of open-ended questions that lawyers should be asking to make sure that they do get the jurors talking? Sure. What are your feelings about, you know, whether companies that make products, you know, should have to you know, safety tests and how much safety testing they should have to do before. What are your feelings about whether you think landlords should have to actually proactively come out and inspect their property or, or it's okay for them to wait until somebody calls in a, you know, a problem? Lawyers are always worried about jurors withholding or are there going to be stealth jurors who are lying to me? It's impossible for a juror to lie if you make them answer an open-ended question. It's really hard to just come up with a whole story of why you feel that way. But do you know if they're lying? I think it's over rated how many lie. But I do think that there's a lot of jurors who have strong feelings and they don't want to express them. So they kind of hold back and they just sit there saying, I can be fair. I can follow the law. And if you, that's all you're asking them, you know, are you okay with awarding money for pain and suffering? I, I'll do what the law says. You know, I can be fair. You know, that's, it's really easy for them. And they're thinking, mm, you know, I have some issues with those things, but and I'm not going to give you a lot, but they're not saying those things. It's really hard for them to actually lie or convince me 
otherwise if you ask them an open-ended question. And like, you know, I'll ask jurors all the time, or I'll have the lawyers ask them, how do you feel about the idea of, you know, giving money, putting, you know, compensating someone with money for something like pain and suffering that really can't be fixed? Because someone who really has some issues with it or rubs in the wrong way are never going to be able on the spot say, I think it's wonderful. I think it's really important. And, you know, they're, they're going to say things like, well, I'll, I'll do what the law says. And you go, that's that's nice, but how do you feel about it? And they really have a hard time if they really feel strongly, you know, in a good way about it. I, I can always figure out if they're lying, if they're dodging the question or withholding it. So you got to just get them asking, you know, tell me more how you feel because you can't withhold like like that. Have you read a book by Chris Voss, Never Split the Difference? I have not, unfortunately, no. He was an FBI negotiator. I'll send it to you. But okay. he, he has a chapter in his book that he talks about mirroring and probing, right? So like, let's say somebody says something, but it's not very open-ended. You just repeat what they said, but in a question format. So if you said, I had a rough day, I would say, you had a rough day? And that gets, supposedly gets people talking. Do you do things like that or no? I'm just curious. This is fascinating. I know that there are lawyers who do all kinds of different mirroring and group formation things. And that's all great when they do it. It's hard for me to teach. I don't, unfortunately, Claire and I don't always have the time to spend a lot of time teaching skills to the lawyers. We're just like showing up in court and we will set them the questions we wanted to ask. But the good thing with jurors is that, you know, probably when you're in the FBI or law enforcement, you're dealing with a lot of sociopaths who are good at lying and jurors just, you know, most, most jurors are just pissed off and they don't want to be there necessarily. And they're not there to sneak their way on a jury. It's a, it's probably very few and far between that someone's actually tried to go to that length to, to try to mislead somebody. But when I have the lawyers asking them questions, the best way, just be friendly and give the appearance that there's, there's no right or wrong answers. I'm not going to judge you either way. The worst thing a lawyer can do is to get a bad answer and they start like arguing or cross-examining the juror or debating with them because that not only shuts down that juror, but everybody else who agrees with that juror that you want to find out is like, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to get cross-examined. I'm just going to agree with this lawyer. And so, you know, the best thing they can do is just tell me more about that and not judge them and thank them. And who else feels that way? And that's a skill that sounds easy, but isn't done nearly often enough from, from what Claire and I will, will see. Now, tell me, how does it work? If a law firm wants to hire you, your services, you will work with any law firm anywhere in the country, correct? I only work with plaintiffs. And I really only work in California these days. We have young kids. I, I've just found in the last couple of years that I'm so busy here that if I take a case out of state that makes me waste a bunch of days traveling and being away from my kids, I've been turning down cases out of state. Maybe when my kids are older, we'll go back to it. You used to. I used to. Yeah. I mean, when I started, I was, it was probably 50, 50 plaintiff defense. It was probably more than half of my work was out of state. And then as I just got to know people in, you know, in, in the plaintiff's bar in California more and more, and, and they started, were the ones who were really hiring me. And that's where my heart is too. I just started turning down defense work, starting turning down more and more out of state stuff. And so, but I, I certainly have picked defense cases in Delaware and Florida before, but just not anymore. I think we are honestly, mostly we get reached out to by California lawyers. So it's not like it's really that much of a hard decision. I think we're pretty well known, especially in the LA area, but yeah, no, we do plaintiff work. I mean, we, I turn down defense work fairly often, unfortunately. And how does it work? If somebody wants to hire you, what's the process? What does that look like? So they would call or email us. I would say probably email is just a slightly bit preferred. And then, um, you know, we do a conflict check, of course. And then we um, asked to see 
briefs from this others from both sides, so we can kind of get a good idea of what the case, like the what both sides are arguing. And we um, will write them questions. So of course, we ask for a retainer, you know, so that they can block off days of our calendar for jury selection because the calendar gets quite crowded, especially the closer you get to trial. And, and then we're there for jury selection as long as we can be. How long does jury selection typically take? So if it's in federal court, it could take half a day. If it's in state court, you know, here in L.A., you know, it'll probably at least two days, sometimes three. But we've had ones that have taken... I mean, I've heard of longer ones. The longest one I've ever done is probably six days, but I've heard of some folks taking a couple of weeks. I've never been in a jury selection that took more than that. But The last one we'd heard of that took more than a few weeks was because it was not even a full a week of trial. It was only three-day courtroom. That can make it last much longer. But yeah, no, with our, our schedules are so busy, it's hard to do two, three-week jury selection because we would be turning down other cases. The funny thing, too, is that jury selection is such an important part of trial. So it's, I mean, it's by far the most important part. And so there are times I was just talking this weekend with a lawyer who was saying, most lawyers will tell judges when they want to cut down on jury selection, give me more time for jury selection and just cut off. I mean, I'll give me an extra day on jury selection. And I'll save a day in the trial. I mean, I picked one with a jury a couple of weeks ago in Santa Monica with Dan Kramer, where we spent longer picking the jury than the presentation of evidence. It took us three full states to pick the jury. And I think it only took two and a half days to put on the trial, which, and it worked out great. So it's one of those weird things. I mean, for judges, they don't always love it that jury selection is taken forever, but it's just so important that, you know, it's hard to, to rush it. What's the benefit to hiring you guys or someone like you to assist in the jury selection process? Because I assume a lot of lawyers feel like they can do it themselves. It's something that they just consider part of it. So where does the, the benefit come in? Well, I would say just at the very most basic benefit, the idea of having a second pair of eyes and somebody who can sit there taking your notes. That's like so many lawyers, I don't even have to, to give them insight. They're already like impressed because it's so hard for a lawyer to take notes and like, you know, really bond with the jury. So that's like the first step. We take that completely out of your hands, you know, but then I think, of course, there's so much more than that. I mean, Harry's done probably, I don't know, 700 trials or something ridiculous like that. I've done 150, you know? So like there's, we've done more trials than every person we are working with for the most part. So there is, you have, not only do we have a good advice for your, for your trial there, but we have all the other trials we've seen. So like a wealth of experience and all the focus groups we've done, we've just seen way more jurors than the lawyers we've worked with have. So besides just, you know, all the analysis we've done on your case. I feel like those are all the ways we're helpful just right off the bat. That's amazing. 700 trials, Harry? Yeah, that's how many juries I picked. Yeah, it's that's like, a ooh. lot of jurors. And the fact that you guys mentioned that you've seen like a juror in two different trials, like that's also kind of nuts. Like that would never occur to me that you would run into like the same juror. It's not two different trials. It's uh, it, they're two different focus groups for cases. So they're they're sitting there hearing the case and oh, you know, making a decision. I have a couple times. I mean, I have seen a juror once in trial that was in our focus groups, and the other way around. Once I saw a juror in a focus group that had been a juror in our trial like a year before, which is funny. Um, that has happened, which is a little weird. Who was a priest? 
He was a priest too, which makes it even weirder. He was a chaplain or something. What yeah. a weird, like what a very small circle of people. Yeah. I know, especially in LA. And, that's, and knowing me is a good way to get off jury duty too. I've gotten probably, probably at least 10 different friends and family members off jury duty because we just happen to be, they'll show up to the courtroom and I'm in there in the trial and, you know, and they know me, so. <laughs> uh, yeah, you can't, right? It's a, it's automatically a conflict or no? Not automatically, no. I mean, I've had, and I've had people that know me say, no, it wouldn't be an issue. I could, I could, would, he wouldn't affect me. And he's not even, you know, I'm not even the lawyer necessarily, but I've had some that, you know, if they want off, it's just like, yeah, I know him and I'm friends with him. And I probably would just subconsciously side with his side because he's such a good friend of mine or something like that. Or the other side just doesn't want him. So it's happened before. I've got not bad jurors, a friend of mine who was a defense lawyer, who would have been awful in the case. We got her off automatically because because <laughs> she knew me. And probably every lawyer knows how to get out of jury duty, but I don't. Not that I live in the States right now, but how do I, how do, I do that? I uh, frankly always tell people, if you want to get off, you just, just talk a lot about the issues that are being asked. If Usually, if you raise a lot of opinions, one or the other side is not going to want you. You know, I think the people who are quiet and and I don't make stuff up, like be honest, but the people who are quiet and don't say much, they tend to get left on. Interesting. Why do you think that is? Well, I mean, if it's a police brutality case and you have opinions on police brutality one way or the other, those are powerful opinions. Like why would you, you know, for example, hate police officers? Why is the attorney for the police officer going to leave you on? Right. So that's why you just if you become very vocal about it and you're making your because most people have opinions about things like this. The problem is that some people just don't really either they don't have strong opinions and then they kind of stay on, you know, or they have really strong opinions and then they make the other side very nervous. Right. So it, that would be my my first point. Would, Harry, would you say anything differently? Yeah. I mean, if you're you know, if you're a lawyer and you're imagine you're what you're interviewing like 18 jurors at once or maybe even more like. People who are just sitting there have nothing to say. They kind of get lost and you'll never strike them. But the ones who they keep hearing, the more the more you talk and the stronger your opinions are, the more something's going to pop on their, on their radar that they're going to be nervous about you. You're always worried that judges are going to think that you're lying and trying to get off the jury. So actually, I tell people, you want to get off the jury? Just say, just keep insisting. I would love to be on this jury. I, I, would I think I can be totally fair, but I think that every police officer is a lying sack of whatever. And uh, I think that lawyers are, you know, you say those kind of things. <laughs> um, you know, they're going to, someone's going to get rid of you. Now, Claire was saying that one of the benefits of having you guys help in the jury selection process is that you guys take notes for the lawyer. So the lawyer can bond with the jurors. What happens after that? Are you also, can you just kind of walk me through it from your perspective, Harry? I'm there the whole time watching the jurors, taking notes, figuring out, you know, when a juror is saying something, maybe a little controversial or interesting, which jurors are rolling their eyes and which jurors are not in their heads and which jurors are going no or which jurors are. So when I'm taking the notes, I'm not only doing that, but I'm also figuring out who are the, who are the really bad ones, who are the ones I need to get rid of, who are the jurors I like, who are the jurors that are followers and I don't have to worry about. So that by the time, cause it can go pretty quick in court when, you know, by the time both sides sit down and they're done, first of all, I'll hand the lawyers a sheet of paper. Here are all the people that we should make motions to get rid of for cause to the judge and exactly what they said. So the lawyer could just have the piece of paper and say, Hey, you know, we'd like to excuse have juror number six excused for cause because she said, uh, all lawyers suck and your plaintiff looks like a liar and a fraud and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, most lawyers that hire us these days do trust us a lot. And, 
you know, trust our judgment. There's a whole chess match about striking jurors because you can pass at times and get, you know, and, and save strikes and you can, you know, strike people and get certain jurors on. And so, um, so we're there with the, the strategy of jury selection is a huge part of it. And we're always telling them, okay, now strike, strike juror number two now. And now they're probably going to strike this juror. And then the juror is pretty good. So we'll pass and then they'll probably keep striking. And, and so we're, we're there pretty much telling them what to do to put together the, the best jury and looking like several strikes down and who are the jurors in the back and who are the ones who are coming up. There's a whole crazy chess match strategy and all that that we are a big part of. Was there a particular jury selection that was really difficult? That you were like, this This was just like so much more difficult than anything else? Or are they all pretty similar? They're somewhat similar, but the, the less time that you get, especially in federal court, sometimes the, sometimes in federal court, the judges don't give the lawyers any time to ask questions. It's just the judge reading a few questions and you're just guessing. I mean, all you know about them is like that guy over there is a bank teller and she's a you know, works at a Vons or whatever. And, and that's all, you know, and so that, those are always tough because you're, you're guessing a lot more and making assumptions a lot more, you know, the toughest ones though, are when probably when there's some really strong issue and both sides are getting people off for cause left and right. So it just takes a million years to find jurors who are claimed to be impartial. And so, uh, and then, you know, with those folks, it may be only the people who are left are the ones who barely said anything other than I can be impartial and you don't know that much about them. The lawyers who do good job actually asking our questions and asking good open-ended questions and getting information makes it so much easier for us to not have to guess. Do you use your intuition as well? Definitely. There's always a, yeah. there's always, yes. a, always a part. Go ahead, Claire. Of course, the, the female is like, yes, yes, <laughs> yes. No, actually, I was, what I was going to say is actually, that's one thing I, I feel like we've done had to do less post-COVID. Masks make it very hard for you to just try to read somebody. So you have to be more reliant on, on your questions and what they, and how they answer. You know what I mean? Cause you're not really making, if you pride and a lot of lawyers struggle with this a lot was if you pride yourself on sort of looking at somebody and making an, some sort of emotional connection or like assessment of them by how, you know, you're interacting, the mask takes that all away. Like 95% of that has been taken away. So you're really reliant. I think a lot of lawyers in the past skated by with asking very simplistic questions, but were able to like look at jurors and assess them and did better by that. And I feel like that has been taken away from them and it's kind of made it a whole new world, you know, because most jurors are still masked in court. I would say in, in Los Angeles, it's still 80% are masked. That's crazy. But if they're masked, do you assume that they're Democrats? doesn't matter to me, really. I mean, it depends on the case. So that doesn't play at all? No, that's, I mean, and that's something that a lot of lawyers put a lot of stock in that's really kind of a myth that it matters what their political backgrounds are to some degree, you know, but where the intuition... Comes, Wait, can we talk about that a little bit more? Why is that a myth? Why, why do you believe that it's a myth that their political background, that it doesn't, it shouldn't matter or not as much? Lawyers tend to believe that People who think like them are going to be more rational and smart and get it and have good values. And therefore, and they kind of mix that with like, and if you agree with our case, that means you have good values. So the kind of two things go together. It's not really the case. I've seen amazing pro plaintiff jurors on both sides of the spectrum. And I've seen horrible ones. On, I've seen super liberal jurors who are horrible 
for plaintiffs. I've had a lot of juries in the last year that were some of our best jurors were like, you know, I, we had one, I mean, one I picked with, with Bob Simon, our favorite juror in that case, who I mean, it was an injury case with a you know trucking case was a big trucker who the second day of jury selection, he had a big t-shirt that said, let's go Brandon on it. He was our favorite juror by far. And he was amazing. He wanted to give us $30 million in this case. <laughs> and we would, every day we'd be texting him like, what's, he'd be like, he'd be like, oh, Harry, you know, let's go. Brandon is like, was like shaking his head during the defense closing and let's go. Brandon was laughing at the defense experts and everything. Well, we love, you know, we love that guy. So, you know, <laughs> I love this. What are some other myths when picking a jury selection? One of the major myths is women are better than men. I mean, I think it really depends on the case. And I would, I, I, Maria, I know you can agree that we not, are always better than men. No, but no two women are alike, right? We would, you would agree with that, right? And there are many cases where women are actually predominantly, can be predominantly worse or much harder on another woman. You know, you know this, you've seen this phenomenon. Like, for example, like a sexual harassment case, some women can be terrible jurors. So, like, that would be like one major misconception. Another one is that people who have, who are really, um, have had like either really injured are going to be good at injury cases or people who have, you know, disabled children are going to be really good in like an injury case because they care for somebody who is needy. So is, you know, has needs. So then they're going to understand a plaintiff with needs. None of, neither one of those is, is true either. If anything, I feel like people who've had significant injuries, can be quite terrible or people who live in chronic pain can be really bad for a plaintiff who has pain. I had a jury uh, a few months ago where our client was a autism counselor who got very injured and we left a nurse on who had autistic children. And the plaintiff lawyer was like, she's going to be awesome. She's going to love our injured client because she's autistic autism counselor and her kids are autistic. She was our worst juror. Like, the one badger. Interesting. Why do you think that is? The reason that is, is because your best jurors, when you're asking them to put a value on something terrible that's happened to someone, are the people who are going to say, I can't even imagine how bad that would be. You know, I can't imagine what it'd be like to be paralyzed and be in a wheelchair in my life. That's worth, oh my gosh, that's millions and tens of millions of dollars. And somebody who's lived through it, even though they... So they're desensitized. Yeah, yeah. And even if they, you know, even if they're sympathetic and they realize it's terrible, those people are, they kind of say, but I get it. And you can live through it. And and it's not, they're not shocked. And so to them, it's like, that's not worth millions and millions necessarily. They'll, They'll give you money and they'll feel bad some of the times. But also people who've been through a lot of suffering in their lives, or they really tend to be really desensitized and to say, hey, basically they have this outlook of life sucks. Everybody suffers... Life's not meant to be happy. And so it's like the student loan thing. Yeah, yeah. Right. Like we see it with the student loans, right? Like I paid off my student loan. So why do you get, and I'm just thinking we have no control where the taxes go at this point. Like we should be asking where our money's going. Like who, at this point, who cares where it goes? Thank God that my little brother doesn't have to pay for student loans anymore. That student loan thing is a whole nother phenomenon too, that we see a lot, which is this idea that People make choices and they should take responsibility for their choices. I mean, it's kind of like, they kind of call it something called personal responsibility. And those people tend to be very damaging to plaintiffs too. You know, people don't take enough personal responsibility for their actions. You know, they, and those are the kind of people who say, you've heard this, Maria. Oh, she got sexually harassed because of what she was wearing. Right? 
these choices you made put you in this position. It's not what everybody else did to you. It's what you did to yourself, right? What, the choices you made that put yourself in the, those people are terrible too. <laughs> they really are, you know, so. Absolutely. No, I could see that. That I mean, that makes perfect sense. I've had jurors in, in cases involving motorcyclists getting hurt. I've had many jurors. I always ask this question. I always say, do any of you feel like even if, you know, if a motorcyclist gets hit by a car and even if the motorcyclist is zero, did nothing wrong, they're, they're going the speed limit, they didn't do anything wrong, the other car totally was 100% at fault, the other car runs a red light or something, how many of you feel like the motorcyclist should still blame themselves for getting injured because they chose to ride a motorcycle? And there's always people who say, I'm going to blame the motorcyclist. You know, of course you're going to get hurt, but you're going to eventually get hurt. So, and, and riding a motorcycle, you knew it was dangerous. He chose to ride something that has no doors. He chose to ride something that has no doors. <laughs> you bought a ticket to the Dodger game. So if you get hit in the face by a line drive, um, you know, it doesn't matter who's, you know, so yeah. So personal responsibility is, is a big thing, but yeah, let's talk about, you know, younger jurors because younger jurors are really interesting and we've done a lot of research and, and articles on that. What, what do you want to know about younger jurors? <laughs> Everything. I am fascinated by this younger generation. I, I wonder how they're going to turn out. My first thought about younger jurors is that it's really hilarious because neither side ever wants them. They're like the hot potato that both sides want to pass. It's very strange. I mean, it really depends on the kind of case. I think in employment cases with like harassment, discrimination, racism at work, younger jurors can, can kill the defense because they have really high standards for what they expect is, you know, you know, I mean, you've heard this, like all the things that they say in high school now about like, you know, people's bound their boundaries and you can't say these microaggressions, all these things, they have very high standards for what's acceptable. And so they can be very good. I agree with Claire that both sides and the reason that, that both sides are terrified of younger jurors are plaintiff lawyers will say they don't have enough life experience to understand pain and suffering and all these things. And the, Defense lawyers are all thinking they're not as smart and rational and they're totally illogical. They don't know the value of a dollar. They'll give away $100 million like it's nothing. And so both sides are, are terrified of them. And, you know, what I always teach is, you know, younger jurors really aren't better or worse necessarily. They're different. There's really great, you know, on, on either side, there's really great pro plaintiff younger jurors that I've kept and have been amazing. And there's ones who are just awful. And a lot of them are actually can be awful, especially the ones who don't want to be there. But they're just totally different. It depends on your case. But like one thing I always teach is that think about like how they were raised, you know, like younger jurors were raised in a time when in employment cases where like nobody is working 50 years for the same company and getting a pension. Like so if you have a juror that's under the age of, I don't know, 40 or at least 35 or something, none of those jurors are going to like think that companies should you know, everyone's going to have a job forever. And they, and most of them are thinking like, yeah, to get promoted or move ahead in your career, you're probably going to have to leave the company. And so what's, it's not quite as big a deal if somebody loses their job after 20 years. But at the same time, those, you know, and older jurors have obviously are like more like, oh my God, like, you know, I know people who've lived, who worked their whole career. My mom worked for the same company pretty much her whole career. But also you need to understand that younger jurors are also lived in a time where safety has always been like, super high standards. They've never probably driven in a car that didn't have airbags. They've never driven in a car. They don't remember a time that were, there were no seatbelts or seatbelts were optional, you know, smoking sections on planes. Um, you know, older jurors will say, hey, I remember a time when like my teacher could like hit me if, you know, if I was bad in school. And younger jurors are like, 
teachers are not even allowed to give me a hug. Like, you know, and there's all these like rules on the playground and like, you know, the playground is all padded and everything. And so, so they totally have different expectations about the world. And so you got to keep in mind, like the younger jurors have just totally different views than older people about the safety of products and what corporations have to do and their responsibilities. I found that younger people are way more cynical about corporations. They're not shocked when corporations lie or are dishonest because they're like, come on, everybody knows that. Whereas older jurors are more like, oh my God, they're supposed to be telling the truth. But younger jurors are way more likely to believe it if you try to convince them that a company lied or did something unsafe because they're like, yeah, that's, you know, whereas older jurors are a little harder to sell on those things. So they're just totally different. And it's funny when you had a jury with a bunch of younger people and older people on it, watching them argue about two different things. So like, you know, I was gonna say one thing I've noticed too, is that they are, first of all, not only do they have very high expectations of supervision, like Harriet was saying, I mean, no one, no young kids go out and play in the dark by themselves anymore, you know, so they have very high expectations with that. But, um, but they also have very high expectations of the lawyers, when it comes to working quickly, presenting your evidence quickly, being technologically savvy. I have noticed that in injury cases where they're on a premises liability cases, they expect security cameras or cell phone footage because like they've grown up in this life where everybody has a video of an incident when it happens. And if there isn't a video, they are suspicious of it. Like I feel like they're probably more difficult on he said, she said type cases because in their opinion, there is no such thing as a he said, she said anymore. If something negative happened, someone videoed it. Like, I mean, that's, that's like a reality that we're coming to now, especially in these last, what, couple of years. Have you noticed a difference in the way people feel about young jurors from the early 2000s to now? Not so much. I think the lawyers kind of feel the same way about them, but I think there's always still a lot of assumptions that get made by the lawyers about being afraid of them. Um, I think both sides for then and now are, are really more nervous for some reason about a about a young juror because most lawyers are not younger. I think the younger lawyers are probably better about really trusting them or at least like taking them, you know, judging them based on their own personalities. I think, but so many lawyers are older that they are just like, I don't get them. I don't understand them. Who knows what they're going to do? Are they going to decide this case based on you know, TikTok or something, whatever, you know, I don't know. So uh, I think they feel the same way. It's just a generational thing. Like as, as the lawyers get older, they probably trust younger jurors less. But should they be weary of younger jurors or no? I think that they shouldn't be weary of any demographic personally. So I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I tend to hear like a trend here, which is just like, be open-minded. Like, yeah, be open-minded and ask the right questions. Yeah. Like I'll, I'll teach lawyers. Like, even if I were to tell you going into a trial, if I said, Hey, I pulled some lawyer aside and I was like nine out of every 10 engineers is horrible for the, our case. And then sure enough, juror number one's an engineer. Most lawyers would be like, okay, I got to strike that guy. Right. And I would say, no, you talk to that guy because one time every one out of every 10 times, that guy would have been great for you. And if you strike him, you just wasted a strike on somebody Great. And so just, you know, and, and it's never, it's never, by the way, the case, it's 90% at all, but you know, it's just like, don't ever judge a book by its cover. And because the ones that on paper seem really bad for you and the defense loves them, that's the one the defense is never going to strike. So if you can get a great engineer, you can get a great like CFO on the jury, frankly, I mean, and this is, you know, I'm not 
being, you know, racist or whatever, but defense lawyers, for some reason, only trust, trust the most like older white males, professional ones. If you can get someone like that on the jury that the defense, like they're not even going to think twice about that guy unless they, unless they just hit him all over the face with something they say in jury selection. Like if that juror is good for you, they're worth even more because like they're going to be on the jury. The defense is never going to strike them. So, so I was, you know, say never judge a book by its cover because it doesn't tell you that much about them. And when you find out, you always got with every jury, you got to dig deep and see what they actually, what their values are. Um, Cause if they're good, I don't care if they're an engineer or a CFO or what old or young or white or not white. I mean, if they're good, they're good. What is the biggest mistake you guys, besides not asking questions, you see lawyers make when selecting a jury? I think there are a lot of mistakes, but I do think a really big mistake is um, being not careful with the way that you talk to jurors and somehow belittling them or demeaning them or, you know, maybe misgendering them. I've seen lawyers misremember names and continuously call the same juror by the wrong name. You have to remember, you have a bunch of people here who are here on their own time and on their own. They're getting paid $15 a day to be here to take your case seriously. The least you can do is take them seriously. Harry, do you have anything else? In any way, judging them when you're talking to them. And that sounds like, why why would I ever do that? But it's like, anytime that you kind of push back or start debating them even a little bit or seeing if you can change their minds. Anytime you're doing that, you're kind of judging them and then they don't want to keep talking to you and other jurors who feel the same way don't want to keep talking to you. I've seen lawyers cross-examine them before. That always goes poorly. It's supposed to be a friendly conversation. It's supposed to be, you know, show them that you're a human being. It's not like some weird required job interview where you're just like, you know, where you have your little piece of paper out and you're like taking notes on them and, you know, oh, Maria, tell me how many kids you have and what do you, you know, you're asking questions and you're just writing it down. It should be an interaction, like make eye contact with them, talk to them, show some curiosity and interest in what they're saying. It's not like a, I've seen a lot of lawyers, especially on the defense side, just come across like not a likable human being because, you know, you're not just there to collect information from them. You're there to talk with them and be interested by them and have them feel like you care and you're a human being too, and not just some some lawyer who's just trying to extract information from them. Lawyers probably know this, but I think it doesn't hurt to re-say, is I think it's a real mistake to let a question go unanswered. One or two questions, if you just kind of let let ask it and nobody says anything, and you just say, oh, I guess there's no one answers to that, and you move on and you do it again, you will have the world's fastest jury selection because you will all of a sudden have whatever, 25 people who have nothing to say. It's like people are very nervous. I don't even know if it's a combination of being nervous to talk and like nobody, you know, like kind of like breaks the ice or if it's just that they think they can get away with not saying anything if nobody else says anything. But it becomes like this weird thing where you are, you're literally talking to yourself. And that's the worst. So then I would tell, I always tell lawyers, if you don't get an answer to a question, I, you pick somebody. I tell them, pick the person who seems like the meanest or most awful or, you know, <laughs> defense first oriented person in the room, pick them, you know, like, and the worst case scenario, they like this, or maybe best case scenario, they say something horrible about your case. And then you say, thank you. That's what I needed to hear. Who else here agrees with juror number one? It's a nasty conversation, but like I said, you're picking, you're trying to find out who your bad jurors are. So hopefully you get a bunch of nasty people talking and then you've already succeeded really with a huge part of your jury selection right there. So 
So that's, but that's always my suggestion. Claire's advice is pick the meanest. I love oh, it. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Every time it really works. And if it's a two way conversation, then that's just not going to happen. People are going to talk to you. If you're asking open questions, open ended questions, people are going to talk to you. It's only like the like robotic, you know, usually defense lawyers who are just like, they're just like collecting information that like, if you're not like friendly and welcoming and listening and showing like you care, those are the times when I've seen like defense lawyers get up there and they're like, you know, does anyone here have a driver's license? Nobody. Okay. And they're like, you know, it's like, does anyone here ever, you know, you know, have 10 fingers? No. Okay. You know, they're just like ignoring them because they're like, you don't need to talk to me and I don't really want to be here and talk to you. And so if you're like not even looking at me in the eye or, talking to me that I'm not going to, nobody's going to answer their questions. I had a trial recently where I was describing the defense counsel as like a diehard villain. He was like the most like not human robotic guy. He had like a, I thought it was like a German accent. He seemed like a villain from a, from a movie. He had his little like gold rimmed glasses and his like matching gold watch, gold pen. I turned out, uh, the lawyer told me afterwards, like, oh, during trial, sometimes he would wear these silver glasses and his pen always matched and his his watch always matched it. And he was just like sitting there, like taking his little notes on the jurors and just no humanity at all. And they just like hated him. And he was shocked that he got killed in trial. But like, you got to just be a human being first, especially during jury selection where you're just talking to him. I mean, it's definitely a great way for plaintiff lawyers to like win the likability, credibility battle right away. And it's really not hard for them. Most plaintiff lawyers are friendly, nicer people than defense attorneys just off the bat. So, like, I mean, it's a great way for jurors already to be more receptive to you from the first moment. I would imagine Bob is, like, super friendly. Like, I can see him connecting with jurors, like, instantly because he's so down to earth. With Bob, my concern is always that jurors think that he's got something to hide because of the beard. I mean, people with beards usually have something to hide. It comes up a lot. I, I wondered the same thing about him, but anyway, that's a whole other story. I didn't know that. I, I feel like I had heard that before, but <laughs> forgot about it. I'm sure he's hiding all sorts of things. No, I would say though, the one thing I would say about someone like Bob, and I think he does it quite well, but I do feel like it is um, sometimes lawyers, they misunderstand it. You can't only be friendly. That doesn't take you quite far enough. So like they see, because he is just such a naturally friendly social person that he can kind of do the difficult parts effortlessly too. But if you think that all you need to do is make jurors laugh and you've succeeded in jury selection, there might be a juror who's laughing at your jokes who still will hate your case, right? So it's more than that. You still have to ask case specific, you know, liability type questions. And, you know, even if this person seems like somebody you'd like to have a beer with, maybe he still would hate your client or hate your case or like you and say, sorry, I liked you, but I'm going to give you zero, right? So it's more, than, it's more than just that, unfortunately. I wish it was just that. Do you guys ever disagree? I know you guys don't pick jury selections together anymore, but back in the day or now, if you for any reason end up collaborating, do you ever disagree? Do you guys each have your own unique way of selecting a jury? I have observed a few of Harry's in the last couple of years. And I would say, I think we agree about like 95% of the time. I would say maybe where we differ is in the chess strategy of the jury selection. I think Harry is naturally a little more risk-taking than I am. So I have to force myself to make a risky choice. So 
And that might also just come from more trials, you know, I'm not sure. But that's like the one thing where I had to like sometimes talk myself into using a sixth strike or something, you know, whereas maybe that comes a little more naturally to Harry. That maybe might the one, and that might just be a male, female thing too. I feel like women are more risk averse in general. I'm not sure. But that's the one thing I've noticed. I would agree. I think and if you were probably to, to see Claire and I pick a jury at the same time and be a fly on the wall, if we we're picking the same jury, what would probably be happen is, you know, if we, we would compare notes and if one of us had a different thought, we'd probably talk about it and end up on the same page at the end of the day anyway. But yeah, I mean, there's it's just, you know, sometimes I think it comes down to really dangerous jurors. If someone who hasn't said anything really bad, and but they could be really strong and vocal and dangerous, what do you do with that person? And Sometimes I feel like, even though I don't know 100%, I feel like I think this person's really good and I think it's worth putting them on the jury. And But there's some times where you want to, where it's just not worth it and you get rid of them. So, but I think, yeah, I think Claire and I agree about most things and we're always evolving what we're thinking about to jurors and we're always talking with each other all the time. And so probably if I have a new idea about something or Claire has a new idea, we catch up with each other for the most part. I would say we probably like the same kinds of people. I think we might come at them slightly differently. Like maybe I might ask a question that's a little different than Harry's type of question. I do use a lot of his questions and vice versa. So he just in general as a person is a little more introspective, introverted than I am. So I think I might come at it from maybe a little more of a like extroverted and exterior way, but usually I think we end at the same result, if that's possible. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but we're very similar type of people with similar thought processes, just in general. That's how we got, that's how we met and got along because we are very, we have very similar thoughts on most things. Now, Harry, you've mentioned this chess strategy. Can you expand on that a little bit? Sure. So, you know, what happens when you're picking the jury in California is, you can, you're only picking the 12 people in the box. And so if you accept the 12 in the box, you don't lose a strike and you only get six strikes each. And so, you know, uh, you can, if you think, for example, I mean, you can bluff. If you think the defense, you're like, there's three people on there. I know the defense is going to get rid of like, there's, you know, a preschool teacher who seems like the sweetest person in the world and two people who were like, have been hit in a crosswalk before you can say, we accept the jury and then they strike three people and you just pass three times. And now you have six strikes and they only have three strikes or they can call your bluff. And, you know, because if both sides accept the jury back to back then that's your jury. And so there's a lot of strategy for, do I pass? Is it, do I not pass? I'm pretty aggressive. I never bluff. I would never accept a jury. Even if I thought the defense was going to keep striking. If I thought if they were to, Except the jury right now, I'd be like, oh, shit, I'm, I screwed up. Like, I would never do that. Oftentimes, I will be okay with one or even two jurors that I don't like on there if we have a lot of really good jurors on there. And so I'll, I'll say, you know what? I'd be happy. I'd be thrilled with this jury. Even though there's two people I want to strike on there, they accept the jury. We'll, we'll be fine. But And if they don't accept the jury, we have more strikes and we'll eventually get rid of those people. So I'm okay, you know, keeping – I remember there was one jury I picked years ago um, – with Dave Ring on a case where there was one juror on there. I was like, I don't want to waste my strike on this guy because no one's going to listen to the guy. I know he's going to be against us. He like used to work for the County. It's against the County. He now works for the city. Everything about him was like a terrible juror, but I went, he's like a kind of quiet guy. He's got a big accent. No one's going to listen to him. No one's going to like him. 
I'm not going to waste this. I'd rather waste my strikes on somebody else and keep these good jurors. And, you know, at the end of the day, it was 11 to one. We had a, what, a huge verdict and they were like, yeah, that guy was against us the whole time. Nobody, he didn't, nobody listened to him. He didn't affect anything at all. So I'm okay doing that. You don't have to win 12 zero. It's okay to have one or two jurors that are against you as long as they're not like leaders and capable of changing people's minds. So I'm okay being aggressive and accepting the jury with some bad people on there. As long as I get a lot of people that I really like, I'm okay rolling the dice. And if the other side, many times if they keep striking, 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 I've had cases where they run out of strikes and we still have four strikes and we can go, okay, now let's get rid of those people and bring in even better people. So, so there's a lot of weird strategy on when to strike and when not to strike and what's the other side or times when there's somebody that we don't like and I go, I think the defense is going to strike this person. So let's just wait. And sure enough, a lot of times they use their strike on them and we go, hey, it's like another free strike for us. So I do a lot of passing and strategic striking, too. The thing that I said that Harry is more a little more aggressive about is when you have you use five strikes and you don't know who's coming up. And then he has used a sixth before without knowing who's coming up. And that gives me like makes me want to throw up having to use a strike without knowing who's going to come in because I mean what if like I did that I had to do that once in a trial and the person who came in after I used the sixth was a CEO of a tech company who hated lawsuits okay so like like what the, the worst possible juror to come in you know so then there's a lot of like nervousness and you have to work really hard to try to get the person off for call. It's just very stressful. So that's where he is. He has picked a lot of juries where he has used all six strikes blind. And I'm like, oh, this makes me so stressed out, but I've done it a few times, but that's where that's the difference. I think it sounds actually really fun, but do you guys ever get like mentally doing this day in and day out mentally drained from it? I have found it lately, very mentally draining just be, for a multitude of reasons Sometimes you just feel like you're really working without like a ton of the payoff that you're hoping for. But we have so little control over the actual trial. It's hard to really know how it's going to go. You hope for the best and you think you've given them the best chance to succeed. But it can be it can be difficult, you know, if something is disappointing. And we I feel for every plaintiff that brings a case. So it hurts me when they lose. How do you recharge when when you're feeling that burnout, that stress? What do you guys do to kind of ground yourselves again? Harry, do you want to answer? Do you have a, Harry, do you recharge? I don't know if you, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean. Claire's like, I want to hear this too. Yeah, he has zero hobbies. This is his hobby. Yeah, focusing on the kids. I mean, I don't, if I'm doing back to back to back jury selections and I'm like working every day for a couple of weeks, definitely I'll, I'll, take a couple of days off and spend more time with the kids and make sure that I'm giving them my full attention. And that, cause that makes me feel better too. You not only have the dad guilt, but you also, you miss them. Take time for vacations. I know a lot of lawyers are like, I don't take vacations and some do. Uh, we definitely do that. And we try to get some time for just Claire and I too. And so we try to build as much of that in as we can. I mean, it's not like, you know, we're not like lawyers who were like, you know, who may do a four week trial where they're just like away from their families for four weeks. I mean, for us, it's like, we may be at the worst. We're working, we're in court every day for a couple of weeks and then that's long enough. I mean, I like to run. And so that's a part of it for me. And when I'm in trial, I have to often cut my runs much shorter or just fit them in when I can. So I like to like, I'll be like, if I'm in, been in a long trial, then come home the next day and be like, Harry, I'm going to run for as long as I want tomorrow. And you can't stop me. You know, like that might be one thing that I would do, 
But I also really, it's weird to say that this is recharging, but I have found it really helpful for me in the past. I like to go watch one of Harry's. There's, there's something that's very like stress relieving about it not being on me to make the decisions, but I can just observe because I find it very, it's almost like a nice, like little tune up. If I'm just watching what the lawyers are doing and it's, I don't have the pressure of making the in the moment decisions, you know, what am I thinking about what they're asking? What would I have done differently? Would I have struck this same person at the same time? Like, I find that really helpful. And I know there are a lot of lawyers that do that too. They love to just go watch another lawyer and that's how they like, you know, perhaps fix something that they might have done wrong before or make it better, make it sharper. I am dying to watch a trial, a PI trial. Like literally, I just, I don't have the time. Otherwise I would totally do it, especially now being in Mexico. I should have done it when I was in California. That would have made way more sense. But then COVID hit and- What is that, CBN trial? Yeah, but even that I haven't had a chance because I, I know Bob had one and I saw people posting about it. And I was like, oh, I wish I didn't have all these things to do and I could just like watch. The problem with that is that um, you can't watch, a, you, they don't show the jury, obviously. So you, you wouldn't have gotten to see Let's Go Brandon sitting there, you know, making his face before oh, that case. Fun. That was the most fun. If you would like to get in touch with Claire or Harry, you can email them at clary at your or harry at your Head to their website, your for the super useful and free jury selection tips that Harry has written over the years. When selecting jurors, Harry and Claire know there's no perfect demographic. They turn to values, beliefs, and expectations to help craft the ideal jury. When selecting your next jury, do be friendly, ask open-ended questions, and give the appearance that there is no right or wrong answer. Don't cross-examine or debate the juror. Might be hard for some of you. Above all else, be human and don't judge a book by its cover. Thank you so much to Harry and Claire Plotnick for everything they shared today. If you found this story valuable, please share it with someone you want to see succeed. Subscribe so you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review. It goes a long way to help others discover the show. Catch us next week on Tip the Scales with me, Maria Monroy, president of LawRank. Hear how the best in the business broke out of limiting beliefs, overcame adversity, and built a thriving, purpose-driven business in the process. Mm-hmm.